So, uh, I've got to get out my tools here. Um, what the Lord put on my heart really dovetails pretty well with what Brother Don talked about on Wednesday and what Brother Brian talked about uh, this morning, and you'll see how at the end. Uh, but to start with, I wanted to just kind of quickly go over uh, what we've been studying in the home fellowships, at least at the beginning, and that is that God is relational. You know, there's no verse in the Bible where the Lord says, I am relational, or um, somebody says, some prophet says, or the psalmist says, God is relational. You have to kind of infer that from what the Lord says, what he does, uh, what he's like. And so we, we looked at a, a lot of things in the home fellowships. We looked at God is forgiving, for example. Well, why would he forgive us if he didn't want a relation with us? Because he's holy, he's not going to have a relationship with sinful man. He's going to have a relationship with a forgiven person, a man or a woman who's forgiven. So he's forgiving us. So that's a relational sort of a, well, not sort of, it's a real, it's because he wants a relation that he's going to forgive us. The same kind of thing goes for why he answers prayer, why he changes his mind because of our prayers, um, why he gets frustrated with us. I mean, you just look at, say, Moses in the burning bush. You know, the, here's the Lord appearing to him in the burning, burning bush. This is a miracle, right? He's right in front of him. And the Lord says to Moses, I want you to go to, my, to Pharaoh and spring my people free from Egypt. And he goes, ah, yeah, you got the wrong man. And then he says, well, what if they don't believe me? And I can't talk. And so the Lord finally gets frustrated. And why? Because he wants a relationship with his people. He wants to draw his people out, have a relationship with them. So these are all things that you infer from God's behavior, from what he says, rather than a direct statement. And so uh, what I have on my heart is really an aspect of this relational nature of God, and that is his concern for all of his creation, including and in many cases especially those who are powerless those who are neglected, and those who are exploited in society. In short, God is concerned about the poor and the needy, and that's where I want to go. When I started looking at this area, and really in many ways it's a theme in the Bible, there's so many verses. Uh, I tell you, I was, uh, there's a mountain of verses, and I was kind of overwhelmed with it. Overwhelmed with both the number of verses and how much God cares for the poor and the needy uh, really kind of organizes bringing it down to something that you could get through in an evening uh, was a bit of a challenge. But what I want to do is talk about first who is or who are the poor and the needy. Uh, God's instructions to ancient Israel about uh, what they should do with the poor and the needy, what we can gather about God's heart regarding the poor and the needy, God's judgment on Israel when they neglected his law, transition into how that maps into the New Testament, 
And then I have a, a request at the end uh, about the poor and the needy, a request for us, me included. So basically, who are the poor and the needy? Well, you know, you, pr- you pretty much have it to begin with, the poor and the needy. Um, but most of the time in Hebrew, there are two words that are translated poor and needy. The first is ani, and I know I'm getting these wrong, and, but that's okay. You, you won't remember it anyway. It's used some 80 times. It means poor, needy, weak, afflicted, and wretched. Uh, these were the, the people who were powerless in society. They didn't have any either money or resources of any kind that they could really draw on. The second word is ebyon. It appears some 61 times. The first one was 80 times. The next one is 61 times. You get some sense of the magnitude. This is in the Hebrew Old Testament. It means to be in want, needy, chiefly a poor, needy person, someone subject to oppression and abuse and someone needing help or deliverance from trouble, especially as delivered by God. In general, that second word refers to the lowest class of people. And for practical purposes, they sort of seem similar at least, but they are, distinguish- they are different words in Hebrew. And you know, you think about it, somebody who's rich really has power. They've got resources that they can draw on that will get them out of a situation that they find themselves in. They've got uh, friends. They've got some influence with probably the government. So they're not really as vulnerable as someone who is poor and needy, who needs the government, who needs a helping hand. So they are the resourceless, and they are vulnerable to abuse and neglect and all the things that come along with being poor and needy. In addition to the words poor and needy, the Bible also uses a many, many times a subdivision of those, and specifically that is the widow, the fatherless, and or orphans, and the foreigner, and sometimes that's called a stranger in the King James Version. These are examples of the poor and the needy, and basically those who have limited resources. Uh, the word foreigner is uh, sometimes, well, poor, uh, I'm sorry, let me back up here. The word widow and orphan are many times used together uh, in a verse, sometimes with foreigner, sometimes without, sometimes foreigner is used separately. If you think about it, in, um, in ancient Hebrew society, a widow would be someone whose husband has died, and really the husband was the provider, uh, was the one that, that would bring in the money, and a, uh, a widow would be basically resourceless unless her husband was very well off, and she could live off of uh, the, the wealth that he left behind. Um, the same thing goes for the orphan. They have no resources. They're usually, I, this is referring to a young person who is out there on his or her own, resourceless. And a, a foreigner or a stranger is basically a Gentile that's residing in Israel. 
they were they didn't have the same resources that a native born Israelite would have. They could not own land, but they were protected by the law. They had most of the uh, rights that were in the law, but they couldn't own land, and they didn't have and so they didn't have like they couldn't have a farm that would be producing stuff that they could sell. They had to live another way. They also didn't have an extended family that could help them in the event that they got into trouble. So again, they're really part of the poor and the needy class, that the, the larger class of poor and needy. So uh, <clears throat> I want to go over next, this is who they are, then uh, talk about... Uh, God's rules to Israel concerning the poor and the needy. And there are really many laws in the book of Moses, but I took three of books of Moses, that is predominantly Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These verses kind of capture the essence of it. And so if you could turn to Exodus 22, and I'm going to need my glasses for this. Exodus 22 and verse 21. says, uh, you shall not oppress a stranger nor torment him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not oppress any widow or orphan. If you oppress him at all, and if he does cry to me, I will assuredly hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. In the uh, New English translation, it says, you must not wrong the foreigner nor oppress him, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. You must not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict them in any way and they cry to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my anger will burn, and I will kill you with a sword. And your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. Uh, now, I don't think that most of us uh, either, even in a position to oppress widows or foreigners or orphans in the way presented in this verse. These words are pretty strong, but not overly strong. I guess maybe, you know, you hear of employers in the United States oppressing uh, foreigners that come in, putting them into forced labor or sex slaves and things like that. So it does happen in this country. Uh, but I want, what I want you to see is that if you mistreat in ancient Israel, if you mistreated a foreigner or a widow or an orphan, that God vows that surely he's going to hear their cry and he's going to kill you. Well, you know, that, that kind of gets your attention. Um, you know, you're saying, okay, Lord, you feel that strongly about it that you're going to take capital punishment? Yeah, okay. So God requires the death penalty or capital punishment only for a few very serious crimes. You go through the Word of God, things including like murder, certain sexual crimes, kidnapping, and the like. He requires the death penalty. 
But if mistreating foreigners, widows, and orphans also requires death, then I think that we can surmise that God considers this to be equivalent to committing a pretty grievous crime. And I'm guessing that it's, look, if you're depriving these people of what's coming to them and you're oppressing them, it's similar to kidnapping. I mean, you're taking away from them all of what's around, what they need. And so he views it in the same way. Second, in this case, God is going to execute judgment, pun intended. Uh, In all other cases that I looked at, at least, uh, God commanded Moses to have the guilty party put to death death by fellow Israelites. Uh, So this was, I think, unusual that God says, I'm going to take over. I'm going to protect these people. I'm going to take care of business. Uh, In addition, God specifies the way he's going to do it, and that is by the sword. Well, he isn't going to physically take a sword and do things, but he's going to use the sword is what he says. It's unusual in the Torah when people are executed by the sword. Finally, what struck me in this verse is God sees where we do not, so that if you are abusing the poor and the widow and the orphan and the needy, He's going to see it, and if they cry to him, it doesn't have to be overt. It can be in secret. He's still going to take care of business. Um, The point here, God is really serious about protecting the poor and the needy, and he's going to do the job. The second verse that I want to look at is, is, this is protecting the poor and the needy, He also has laws to provide for them, not just protecting them, but providing for them. For example, if you go to Deuteronomy 14.28, and by the way, I'm reading out of the uh, New American Standard Bible, and this is the uh, 2020 copyright date that I have. So Deuteronomy 14.28. And this is a new Bible to me, so the pages don't turn well yet. They'll get there. Fourteen twenty-eight. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe from your produce of that year, and you shall deposit it in your town. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the strangers the orphans and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all all the work of your hand which you do. So we see two things going on here. First, the Lord instructs the Israelites to deposit a tenth of their produce in the nearest town uh, so that the Levite the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, can eat and be filled. Uh, Interestingly, the Lord requires them to deposit it in the nearest town. Kind of sounds like a food pantry, you think? So we didn't invent food pantries a long time ago. The Lord did. Uh, But 
and so that they could come and get what they needed from the food pantry. The second thing is, the Lord uh, says that he's attaching a blessing to it. And it's not just, it's not just a, uh, a blessing. I'm going to compensate you for the 10% that you're going to deposit in the food pantry, saying, I'm going to bless the work of your hand. So that's everything. So you make a donation of a tenth every third year, and he blesses everything that you do for the next three years. That's a good deal. That's a really good deal. Um, he, he doesn't um, uh, wimp out on blessing you. He, it, it sounds to me as though he's saying, look, I'm really concerned about the poor and the needy so much I'm going to give you a blessing for three years, three, three for one, and everything that you do. So it's not just your produce, it's everything. But that's not all, because God also ensures that the poor and the needy have food, not just every three years, but every year. So if you go to Leviticus uh, 19... And verse 9. And you'll recognize this, I think. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the very edges of your field, nor shall, uh, nor shall you gather the gleanings from your, of your harvest, and you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen grapes from your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy for the, and for the stranger." I am the Lord your God. So what the gleanings were were just, you know, if you didn't manage to grab a cluster of grapes or, you know, you didn't get every apple from the tree or you didn't, whatever, every sheaf of wheat, some of the wheat fell on the ground. Those were the gleanings. Nor could you do the corners of your field. Those were for the widows, the orphans, the needy, the poor. And so every year they could come in and uh, get food. Um, this was what was used by uh, Naomi and Ruth uh, in the book of Ruth. And if you're not familiar with that account, Ruth, Ruth, I'm sorry, Naomi left Israel during a famine uh, only to return as a widow with her daughter-in-law, who was also a widow, her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And because they were poor and without resources, they gleaned the fields of a man, very rich man, named Boaz, who later married Ruth. And it's a great account in the Word of God. Uh, there are many more examples, but the bottom line is that God instituted laws to both protect the poor and the needy, and to provide for him, and to provide for him for them well. Um, if they kept the God, if they kept the laws, God would bless them. If they didn't, there were consequences to pay. Uh, so that's the law part. The next thing that I want to talk about is let's look at uh, in the Psalms. You know, the Psalms many times kind of reveal God's heart. They talk about what God does, but it talks about his heart and how he feels about things. So um, uh, 
If we look at, first of all, Psalm 35.10, I don't think I'm going to... Well, no, we can go through here, here. I don't want the time to get away from me too much. And I need my glasses. And if I'm not mistaken, this is, yep, this is a Psalm of David. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you, who rescues the afflicted from one who is too strong for him, and the afflicted and the poor from the one who robs him? So this is David, the psalmist, is saying, This is a characteristic of you. You watch out for those who are afflicted, for the poor, the ones who are marginalized in society. If we go to Psalm 140, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but you'll see there's just a ton of scriptures about this. Psalm 140, verse 12. Oh, there it is. (laughs) Um, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Certainly the righteous will give thanks for your name and the upright will dwell in your presence. So the, the Lord... Uh, If you go to the NET, the the New English Translation, it says, I know that the Lord defends the cause of the oppressed and vindicates the poor. So, you know, you picture a a courtroom scene, and I've only seen it on television. No, actually, I take that back. I've been called for jury duty, so I've seen it. But I've never been, I've never served on a jury. Uh, But you have the defendant with his or her attorney, and you have the prosecutor uh, at a different table. Basically, what this seems to be saying to me is that sitting at the table of the poor and the oppressed, sitting next to him is the Lord defending him. That's pretty good defense, you think? You think that that's a pretty good defense? I think so. I'll take that. Uh, So it says, God is the defender of the press, He will not let them go without someone sitting next to them ready to defend them. And he clears the poor from from suspicion and accusations. In Psalm 72, he says, He will have compassion on the poor and the needy. He will save the lives of the needy. In Psalm 68, 5, it says, He is the father to the fatherless, an advocate for widows, God rules from his holy place. Uh, So, you know, he's a father to the fatherless. So I was thinking, okay, well, what attributes go along with being a father in ancient Israelite uh, society? And so I think, okay, a father would certainly be a guide, certainly provide for. He's the provider for that family. He's going to watch over it. Uh, protect it. He's going to correct. He's going to defend. 
So these are, I think, attributes, characteristics of what a father is going to do in ancient Israelite culture. That's what God's going to do to the fatherless and to the, and to the widow. And finally, uh, in Psalm 12, uh, verse 5, because of the devastation of the poor and because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord, I will put him in safety for which he longs. So now this is the Lord talking, not somebody talking about the Lord. This is the Lord himself talking. He says, I'm going to get up. I'm going to take care of business. So the Lord rescues, defends, vindicates, protects, guides, provides for, watches over, corrects, answers the cries of the poor and needy. And while these are all action verbs, you can see God's heart shining through on them. So we've looked at uh, God's laws and the Psalms where we see God's heart. Uh, I'd like to look now at some of what we see in ancient Israel, uh, where Israel and others didn't follow through with what God commanded. And so as you might expect, it didn't go well with him. So the first instance is actually in the time of Abraham. And so you know where to go for information on Abraham? Yes? Where? Ezekiel. Yes, you're right. Gotcha. Yes, chapter 16 Verse 48, if you will. You thought I was going to go to Genesis. Let's see. The old, hang on. 1648. Okay. So if you look at, uh, to give you a little bit of uh, background, uh, chapter 16, uh, the Lord is talking uh, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and talking about his problems with them. Uh, The chapter, truthfully, is a pretty tough read. God is pretty graphic about his beef with uh, Jerusalem. Uh, But I want to focus on just this verse. It says, as I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister. Okay, so he's comparing Jerusalem to the city of Sodom. That's pretty bad to start off with. But he's saying, Sodom, your sister and her daughters, I presume those are the surrounding area around Sodom is her sister's have not done as you and your daughters have done. So, okay, they haven't done the same. Behold, this was the guilt. By the way, they've done worse. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, plenty of food, and carefree ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. So they were haughty and they committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Okay, so there, it turns out that if you look at different translations, this is translated differently in different translations. That must be a, a less than clear verse for everything 
that's in it. But one thing comes through every time, and that is that the Lord's upset with them about how they treat the poor and the needy. They didn't take care of them. So if you look at it, they were haughty or arrogant, so they thought they had their act together. Does that sound like Laodicea? A little bit. They uh, were... uh, They had plenty of food, so they had resources that they could take care of the poor and the needy, and they had carefree ease, so they had the time to take care of the poor and the needy, but they didn't. So they had all the resources. They didn't do it. God was upset. And he said they also did abominable things. I mean, he didn't leave that out. He didn't list them out in detail, but he said, look, They were a mess, and I took care of business. They're not around anymore. So at least you could say that not taking care of the poor and the needy made it to his list of things that he had, that he had against Sodom. And he was saying to Jerusalem, you're worse than Sodom. I have more against you than that. Uh, So... Uh, it's pretty easy to see that he had, even before the law, he still had a heart. He didn't change. Still had a heart for the poor and the needy. Um, Sodom is not the only people group who were punished because they didn't care for the poor and the needy. Uh, We don't have to go any further than Isaiah chapter 1 to see this. In the beginning of chapter 1, God is... Uh, telling Judah and Jerusalem what a mess they are. Okay, they were full of spiritual sores from the top of their heads to the soles of their feet. In verse 10, the Lord also equates them with Sodom and Gomorrah and continues by saying that even though they outwardly observe the law, uh, their deeds are evil and God hates what they're doing. In uh, verse 16 of chapter 1, he says... Wash, cleanse yourselves, remove your sinful deeds from my, st- my sight, stop sinning, learn to do what's right, promote justice, give the oppressed reason to celebrate, take up the cause of the orphan, defend the rights of the widow. He's telling them, do what's right. And what he's using there is, he's saying, defend the rights of the uh, you know, take up the cause of the orphan, defend the rights of the widow. That's in the New English translation. Also, in verse 23, he continues, also in the New, uh, New English translation, your officials are rebels. They associate with thieves. All of them love bribery. They look for payoffs. They do not take up the cause of the orphan or defend the rights of the widow. So how I look at that verse is I say, okay, so... The, the rich, the wealthy, were able to pay them off. They loved being paid off. They would defend the rights of the wealthy and of those who had enough money, enough resources to pay them off. But widows and orphans didn't have any resources. They didn't have any money to pay them off, so they were neglected. I'm not going to bother with you guys because you can't grease my palm so why should I bother with you? And they didn't advocate for them, even though they were supposed to. Uh, this verse c- 
comes directly after God says that their sacrifices are abominable, their attempts to keep the rituals, even those for atonement, were displeasing to God. They're not caring for the poor and the needy. That's what he did. So, you know, these two verses, and there's a bunch of other ones. This is not isolated. It almost seems like the Lord is using uh, ancient Israel's and other civilizations like Sodom's, their treatment of the poor and needy kind of as a litmus test. It's kind of like this is the benchmark that I'm going to use to say, hey, if you're not doing this, there's something wrong. I'm looking, I'm saying, you're not caring for the poor and needy. You're not doing what I want you to do. There's got to be many other things that you're doing wrong. It comes across as though this is sort of that litmus test. Uh, So in addition to uh, certainly Isaiah, Jeremiah complains about it. There are other verses throughout the prophets that talk about it. And so what happens? You know what happens. Babylon attacks them, kills many of them with a sword, takes a remnant off to Babylon, and uh, they they go into exile. So God fulfills what he said he would do. Look, you don't take care of the poor and the needy back in the Torah. I'm going to come after you with a sword. And sure enough, what happened? He came after them with a sword. So all of this is in the Old Testament. So what about the New Testament? Well, God's heart doesn't change. It stays pretty much, it's not pretty much, it stays exactly the same. He doesn't change. So if we go to the New Testament and we look at what Jesus said in Luke 4, this is when he's inaugurating his ministry. And in Luke 4, 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered into the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood to read, And the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And by the way, this is about, near as I can figure, about a 90-foot-long scroll. It's a long scroll. He knew the Word of God really well because he unrolled it until he found the place. It's not as though you're going to read through it to find the place. He knew where it was. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, those of the needy, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the people in the synagogue were intently directed at him. Now he began to tell them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there and seen that? Whoa. Man. So uh, Jesus announced that his whole focus was going to be on the poor and the needy. And indeed, that is what he did. Uh, So if you go to uh, uh, Matthew 11... And uh, verse 2, 
Now, while this is about John the Baptist. So John the Baptist gets put in prison through a series of events. And uh, John the Baptist, of course, was there to announce that Jesus was coming. And he's put in prison. And now he's having some second thoughts. He's saying, hey, is Jesus really the one that we're looking for or isn't he? So while in prison, John heard about the works of Christ. And he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or are we to look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, now he's not going to give them a direct answer. He's going to give them examples. What examples does he use? Go and report to John what you, see, what you hear and see. Those who are blind receive sight. It's from Isaiah. Those who are limp walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. Those who are deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's also from Isaiah. And blessed is any person who does not take offense in me. So what does he do? He talks about the scripture. He says, look, these are the things that are being fulfilled. Go tell John. He'll know what I'm talking about. But what did he choose? It was all about the poor and the needy. God didn't change. God's heart stayed the same from the beginning of the book right through to Jesus' ministry. It stayed the same. Uh, So uh, he was fulfilling the prophecies that were written about him. And, you know, uh, again, if you think about it, he was talking about the lepers and the lame and the blind. You know, there must have been a fair number of people in the population who were lame, who were blind, etc. If you think about it, there was no OSHA. There were no workplace standards. And if you were, say, a stone cutter and you were hammering away at stone and a chip, stone chip flew in your eye, you were blinded. Now what do you do? Well, you got another eye, but are you going to continue to be a stone cutter and risk the other eye? I don't know. You're going to there are going to be all sorts of other hazards in the workplace. So I think the lame and people with arms broken, etc., were probably pretty common. Uh, so I think that this wasn't like uh, a small segment of the population. I think it was a pretty reasonable segment of the population. And uh, these are the people that Jesus helped directly. Uh, this I found very interesting also. If you go to Matthew 25, and I'm going to be summing it up here pretty soon, and then I'm going to get to my point, because I haven't gotten there yet. If you hadn't figured that out, I'm sure you did. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Matthew 25 and verse 41. Forty-one. Then he, so this is where Jesus is separating the sheep from the goats. And this is where he's talking to the goats, those that are not saved. And he says, then he will say to them on his left, depart from me, you accursed people, into eternal fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger 
and you did not invite me in naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they shall then they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or as a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of these one of the least of these, you did not do it to me either. What struck me about this is that what the Lord is saying here is he's criticizing them for what they did not do, not what they did. So his focus is not just, well, Lord, I did all this other good stuff. I'm not going to make it, guys. He's going to look at what you didn't do as well. James summarizes this very well. In James 1, 27, he says, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> uh, and this is out of the New English translation. He says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to care for the orphans and the widows in their misfortune and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, keeping oneself unstained from the world is a mouthful, okay? I mean, Paul goes through a lot of detail about what that means. So this is not just a really small encapsulation. I mean, there's a lot of meat that you could go in here to unpack it. But that's not what he goes to first. He says, take care of the widows and the orphans. So uh, simple but loaded with meaning. Okay, so now you can say, okay, Brother Tony, what's your point? Well, okay, I actually do have a point and a request. Uh, But before I do that, I'd like to go through some of the things that we do here as a church, just to kind of set the stage. So when, when Brother Bob was starting the church, one of the things he did was he prayed, Lord, send those that nobody else wants. And guess what? That was the poor and the needy. Because a lot of the people that came in, not everyone, but a lot of the people who came in were the poor and the needy. They were the drunks. They were the drug addicts. They were the drug dealers. People who had been in jail for doing some pretty bad things. Uh, It was the poor and the needy. And that's how we started out. And we really haven't changed a focus uh, in the interim, if you look at some of the things that we do, we support uh, Brother Run in Burma. Guess what? He works with the poor and the needy. Brother Geary in India works with the poorest and the neediest of that poor and needy country. Um, you don't have to go any further than to look across the road here or across the way, across the parking lot, Living Word Academy. You know, um, Brother Brian has said many, many times, it's a miracle every day that opens, and I listened to him say that for years before I actually volunteered there. It's a miracle every day it opens. Oh, my goodness. You can see God's fingerprints all over that place. It's amazing. It's it's. It's a wow. I'm just blown away every time I go in there. Um, 
But Living Word Academy is uh, probably the most affordable Christian school in the area. I don't know that for a fact, but it's got to be close to it if it's not there. And if not close, it's got to be pretty good in New York State as far as affordability goes. Why? We want to make it accessible to the poor and the needy, and we help you out if you can't afford that. Look at the kitchen there. They provide food, among others, for the poor and the needy. It's awesome. It's just so cool. Um, <clears throat> look at Christian Health Service of Syracuse. Again, God's fingerprints are all over that place. I'm in a position there where I get to see a little bit of the inner workings. I'm, I'm what's called by the clinical staff a cellar dweller. I work in a windowless office, and I don't see a lot of what goes on upstairs, but I see other things. And I go into Brother Gary's office all the time, Brother Gary, amen, and say, God's fingerprints are all over this place. I see miracles all the time. It's awesome to watch the Lord work. Christian Health Service of Syracuse was started by five brothers from this church to serve the poor and the needy. And I'll tell you, you walk through the the waiting room there, you see the poor and the needy. Your heart goes out to them. It's it's a work of the Lord. So are we doing things? Yes. All of these efforts fulfill our, um, a lot of the biblical responsibility. Okay, that said, here's my request. Pray for these ministries. Please pray to see the people, to pray to the Lord that people are saved through this, that they give their life to Jesus, get filled with the Spirit, and they follow him till they die or the Lord comes. Uh, You know, uh, we're doing a good work with uh, the food pantry, with Christian Health, with the Academy. Brother Brian was saying this morning, you know, we want to see more people saved. We want to see people They don't say, well, I was here at White's Chapel. We want to see people say, I've been here six months and my life has been dramatically changed. I'm a different person than I was when I walked into this place. Jesus is awesome. That's what you want to see. That's what your heart wants to see more than anything else. Uh, The food pantry is great. We're we're meeting people's needs. I'd love to see more people come to the Lord. Um, Um... Brother Don was saying, you know, if you, if you know it's the Lord's will and you know that God is going to get glory out of it, he's going to answer your prayer, guess what? I just went through a whole bunch of stuff to say it's God's will to, to minister to the poor and the needy. And guess what? When they get saved, he's going to get glory out of it. It's a slam dunk, man. That's a grand slam home run for a prayer, prayer request. Uh, one last thing. Do you remember the word? Uh, it was El Ion. It means to be in want, someone needing help or deliverance in trouble. And while it refers to the lowest class, you know, 
Someone in want and someone needing help can also be someone who's rich, if you're talking about a spiritual sense. If you look at what the Lord said to the church of Laodicea, they were, they were rich, and they said, we have need of nothing. But the Lord said to them, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So it's not just what we see as the poor and the needy that need Jesus. The poor and the needy can also be somebody who's rich and is blind and wretched and naked and doesn't see that they need a Savior to pull them out of the garbage that they're in. So that's my, that's my word, uh, my, what I wanted to share for tonight. Pray for these ministries. Pray that the Lord moves us out of our cocoon, that we, we reach out. Syracuse is a poor place. It is a poor city. There's plenty of uh, poor and needy in this city. We need really to minister to these people, to, to pray for them, to go out and, and work with them. And that's it. Thank you. God bless you. Good night.